Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Today might be your first time going to church in years or ever. Some of you go to church all the time. Um, This might be the most dangerous thing you do all week. Because we're not studying just like a book and not just looking for an inspirational word, but we want to meet with the living God. And he might radically change the direction of your life. And so we've been looking at Moses the last few weeks, and I was thinking in the first service about how when Moses came to that burning bush, God said, take off your sandals. It was an act of humility, acknowledging, you're not like me, God. You are different. And so I want us to just take a moment and pray, and then we're going to jump right into where we left off last week in Hebrews chapter 11. But let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and I don't know what you want to do. I'm too small and not smart enough to figure out what you could possibly be doing in a bunch of people's lives, but I know you want to save people. And so I pray that you might um, change somebody's eternity today. Um, I know if there's people that are walking away from you, drifting away from you, or actively involved in sin, you want them to make a U-turn. I pray you do that today. Uh, there's people that are living for you, and I pray you'd fan that flame. And there's folks that are striving and getting worn out. Give them rest. I pray that this would be a refuge as we set this time apart to meet with you. Um, God, will you do something that I could never ask or imagine, but that's even better? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read in verse 23. We're really going to start this message today in verse 28. So if you want to read ahead, you can. I encourage you to have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some on the back tables there and out in the lobby as well. Hebrews chapter 11. If you get to the part about angels at the throne, you've gone too far. If there's a list of hard names, you're not there yet. So Hebrews chapter 11. What's been happening is we've been doing this series called Risking It All. And what we've been doing is using the word risk synonymously with the word faith. And for some of us, that seems odd because we think we have faith, but our lives lack risk. Well, we're talking about risk because in taking a faith step, which means whenever God's called you to do something or commanded you to do something and you obey, you don't know how it's going to turn out. So it's not a risk for God because he knows what happens next, but you don't. And so it feels like a risk for us. And what we're seeing is there's a group of folks in this book called Hebrews, they were drifting away from God uh, because we don't actually drift toward him. And there were some that were counting the cost of what it is to follow Jesus, and they were deciding to go back to a comfortable religion rather than to be at the ragged edge of risk. And what the author of the book of Hebrews tells us is he tells us what risk is in chapter 11 and verse 6 when he says this, and without risk... It's impossible to please him, talking about God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hmm. Well, that's interesting because a lot of us in our faith journeys, we live like we've got faith, but there's no risk in it. And and we almost feel like sometimes it's impossible for us to risk, like maybe because that was for college kids or now I'm married and my spouse wouldn't want to or, or I've already done those things and... What we see in the Bible is that it's not impossible for you to risk. What's impossible is to please God and not risk. And so he's calling these people, and what he does is so encouraging. Before he even talks about these famous folks we've been talking about in this series, Abraham, Enoch, whoever the different people are, Moses we've been looking at the last couple weeks, he reminds them of their own faith. In chapter 10, in verse 34, he says, Not only do you know in your minds that living by risk is the best way to live. He said, you've done it. And some of you can relate because at one time, your life was far more faith-filled than it is today. Listen to what he says to them. 
He says in verse 34 of chapter 10, for you, you, you are the example, for you had compassion. Something was welling up inside of you that overflowed outside. On those in prison, and you, and if you do have a copy of the Bible, underline this, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Oh, he answers that sense because for you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It's an eternal reward. What we were talking about last week, what was mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, he rewards those who seek him. He knew there, there was something abiding or eternal. So they weren't only willing to risk it all, they were risking it all. They had put their, you know, put your yes on the table. Anything, anytime, anywhere, anything you want me to do, anywhere you want me to go, anytime you want me to do it. So when I'm 80 or 18, what about what he said? Whatever you say, the answer is yes, God. Wherever you want me to, yes, God. Is that you? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, we've been looking at one of the people that lived a life like that, Moses. Remember in verse 23, he wasn't always that way. We start off with our formula, by faith, Moses. And so the formula, by faith, name of the person, and then it doesn't say what they believed. It doesn't say how they voted. It doesn't say what they tweeted. It's how they lived. By faith, but the first one isn't even really about Moses. By faith, verse 1, that's the first week when we were looking at Moses a couple weeks ago. We saw that God was using other people and places and his passion and even his past to prepare him to be a person of faith, to take this risk, to do what we're calling, I've called today's message, the, the ragged edge of risk, to live on the ragged edge of risk. You're right there with God, whatever he's telling you to do, and you don't know what's going to happen. Moses wasn't always like that. Verse 23, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents. His parents don't even get named, but they're the ones that are living by faith here because they saw that the child was, and we saw that the word there means God's good creation. They chose life and a culture of death, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. We talked about fear. That was week one. And we looked at just that one verse and a little bit of Exodus chapter 2 through 4 and some of the background of what was taking place there. And we saw that normal Christianity requires abnormal risk. And we saw that oftentimes the people that God uses greatly are the ones that risk greatly. But none of us by nature naturally run to that. And so what he does is he prepares us. People, places, all that stuff. He used Midian, he used his past, even murder he used in Moses' life to prepare him to be the leader that he was. Then last week we looked at Verse 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, there's our formula. When he was grown up, so it's about 40 years later, it's Exodus 2.11. He does a couple things here, some major choices. There's two courageous choices that are at the foundation of everybody who lives on the ragged edge of risk. He refuses, he chooses, and those are the people God uses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused, first action, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25, choosing, second action, rather to be mistreated by the but rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. So he refuses, chooses, and that's who God uses. He refused temporary temptation. He chooses eternal rewards. This is verse 26. He considered, that's an important word. This wasn't an emotional decision. He took years contemplating this. It's like Jesus says, count the cost. Count the cost. Eat eternities long. Everything you see here is temporary. Your life is a vapor. Count the cost. He considered the reproach of Christ, greater wealth, as he weighed these things out, the reproach of Christ was weightier than the wealth of this world, than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, that's the eternal reward, 
By faith, he, there's our formula, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who's invisible. We talked about fear last week, and we talked about how our vision of God fuels our passion for God. And we paused, remember, and I talked about how we lack awe in this time, where we just are continually passive and entertained, but there's not many things that surprise us or amaze us. And we looked at some of the pictures that no humans had ever seen until this generation from the James Webb telescope that NASA had put out. And we talked about how awe-inspiring they are, and even non-believers are going, it's just so overwhelming how small we are, and that's just a tiny, a tiny little micro picture of our universe. And we're portal for multiverse, maybe infinite universes, and God holds it all together with the power of his word. That Jesus was before it all, in it all, controls it all, and he cares about you. He knows the hairs on your head, that he is transcendent, and he's imminent, I meaning he's other than us, he's outside of space and time. We can't even comprehend that. But he intimately knows your thoughts before you think them. That's awe-inspiring. He's a big God, should inspire a big faith, and we saw Moses, he was looking to that which was unseen. And that's what it says at the end of verse 27. As seeing him who is invisible. And we saw those who do what other people don't do get to see what other people don't see. Those who live by faith, they get to see some stuff. And today, it says this, by faith he, same formula, by faith he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 29, by faith, the people, not just Moses, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, they did the same thing. When they attempted to do the same, were drowned. We did the same action, but one lacked faith, one's destroyed, one's delivered. Interesting. And you see here in this passage, we kind of are at this climactic moment in Moses' faith journey, in Israel's faith experience. And so if you don't know the Bible very well, what's happened is God calls this guy to come and be their deliverer, Moses. He's got two million people that he's let out of generations of bondage. They're standing in in a really tough situation. So it's a tense moment. And if you don't already know the story, you're going, they're dead. Like this is over. They got water behind them. They're trapped on both sides. And then ahead of them is the most powerful army in the world. And they're coming in their chariots. These people aren't on chariots. There's thousands of chariots storming at them. And it's like, what are they going to do? And and what we're going to do today is I want you to think about that moment. And we're going to kind of like, have you ever seen a movie that starts at the end? Last night my wife fell asleep before I did, which is typically like every night. And so she fell asleep before I did. And I started watching uh, Slumdog Millionaire. It's about a decade old movie, but I hadn't seen it in a while. And they start at the end. And if you haven't seen the movie, there's you know, this really poor kid from India, and he's on the, the TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? But it's in India. And so they're, you know, you know who wants to be a millionaire? But then they're giving out rubies. But anyway, um, so he said rupees, I think is what they're called, 20 million rupees. He's at the last question. But the movie starts by saying, how did he get here? A, he cheated. B, he's a genius. C, lucky. D, it is written. And then he's like being beaten and interrogated and you've got this and it's like, is he going to answer the question right? What's going to happen? And they zoom back out. And so here we are in the Exodus and lots of stuff has taken place. Like if you don't just take the Sunday school version or the movie version, you like read the Bible, what actually happens in Exodus, it's crazy. Why are they so terrified when they're standing there? Because the people that are charging after them, they just handed over all their money to these folks. 
I mean, the, the Hebrews didn't do anything. God said, hey, you're going to go pillage these folks, and before you take a road trip, go ask them for some cash. And they go house to house. The Hebrews are like, go to their, their Egyptian neighbors who've been their masters, their slave owners, and say, hey, can I have some of your gold and silver? And they're like, here, take every, here's my 401k. You can have it all. And then they say, leave or we're all going to die. And they're right. But when they're at this moment, do you know what they say? <laughs> Exodus chapter 14 is almost comical if it wasn't sad. It says this to Moses, their leader. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Please, if you study your Bible, remember to do it better than me. I, where do they say this? Because the Bible says they've been crying out for 430 years to be released from Egyptian slavery. And nobody was complaining when the 401k was getting handed to them. But now that war is coming at them, now that they're actually in a dangerous, now that it might cost them something, they run to comfort. Oh, they're just like the Hebrews and us. And God knows that we do not run to risk even though we were designed for it. And he knows that we don't drift toward him even though we were made for him. And so there was a verse this week that I read that I thought was pretty awesome. And usually just read over it because we don't know, you know, Bible geography uh, that well. And it's, uh, it's something. Look at this. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. You ever seen this in the Exodus story? When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines. Why not? Although that was near. That would have been the shortest route. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Because hmm. he knows we don't go toward risk. Because with risk, there's a cost. And here's what's happening in many of our lives here in America. Is it, it's tense times, right? Like, we don't know what's going to happen. Is there going to be another virus? Who's going to get elected? What's happening with the economy? Like, all these things happening. And what happens for a lot of us as Christians is we're longing for America to go back to the American Christianity that we once knew. It was safe, it was comfortable, and it was an idol. And the question is, uh, do you want the real thing? Because that's an option, but it's going to cost you. Living life on the ragged edge of risk does mean the reproach of Christ. So the days in America where being a Christian is going to get you elected to office or get you a promotion in your office and all those types of things, yeah, that's going away. So are you still in? The way that I phrased the first point is simply this. Living on the ragged edge of risk will result in lots of ours in the reproach of Christ. It does. If you, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. The Bible promises you that. And Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. They hated me before they hate you. If they love you, you're just like them. The world will love you because you're just like them. But if you're like me, they rejected me first. And so, what do you think? Because walking with Jesus is dangerous. You know, most of us, when we think about walking with Jesus, kind of our American version is, you know, a coffee mug and the Bible, and we take a little Instagram picture. I'm doing my, this is my walk time. This is my walking with Jesus time. The most dangerous thing we do is hashtag no filter. But think about it in the Bible, like the disciples, when they're walking with Jesus, they never knew. Like, yeah, they left everything, totally turned their world upside down. They're following Jesus. We're, we're all in with him. And like he feeds 5,000 people, which is awesome, but then keep reading. Then the next day, the mob's following him because they want more food. You want a dangerous mob following you, demanding food that you don't have? It's dangerous. You don't know how it's going to go. 
Or is he going to let some prostitute wash his feet? Or is he going to heal somebody on the Sabbath, make the religious guys really mad? Or maybe he's going to overturn the tables. Like you just didn't know what was going to happen every day following Jesus. But you were with him. John chapter 11, one of his friends gets sick. Jesus lets him die. And then Jesus says, let's go to him. And his disciples are like, no, 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 we'll die. They tried to stone you last time we were there. And then Thomas, we always call Thomas Doubting Thomas. Thomas was the man. Listen to this. Thomas says this, John chapter 11, verse 16. Everybody needs a friend like Thomas. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his other disciples, the fellow disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. <laughs> He's all in. And it's dangerous. But you say, well, that's like literally walking with Jesus. Well, what about after that? What did you see in the Bible with the disciples after that? So you got Peter and John, and they go in Acts chapter 3, and they're preaching, and this guy gets healed, and they get arrested. And there's a great devotional verse that you could put on your Instagram page. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 13. They were ordinary people, but they had seen that they had been with Jesus. Don't stop reading. Because in the next chapter, they get arrested because of that then miraculously delivered from prison, then rearrested and willingly go, rather than demanding their rights. And then they debate about whether to beat them or kill them, and they decide just to beat them. Because killing them might spread the gospel, and so we're just going to beat them. And, and then the disciples say, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy of the name. So the difficulty and danger in their life was a result of their obedience. Kind of like when they got in the boat and there was a storm. It's because they obeyed Jesus. Kind of like why the Israelites are at the edge of the Red Sea. It's, we got this myth because of our Americanized fake Jesus that, that if we just follow Jesus, he's going to deliver to us all the things we want in our lives. But what you see is it's pretty dangerous following Jesus. And so because of their obedience, not their disobedience, they're experiencing difficulty, danger. The Apostle Paul says, I was flogged five times. Whipped, beaten. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives this crazy list. Listen to it. It says, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers. So nature, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Yeah, sometimes they're the worst ones. Danger from Gentiles. Danger from the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. There's a lot of danger. And it was all a result of his following Jesus. But American Christianity, a lot of times it's, pretty controlled and pretty safe and not a lot of danger. The other day at our house, um, I was just in my office. I got this office that's above the garage. It's where I write most of the sermons and work from home when I'm able to work from home. And I don't know about you, some of you are engineers and you're like super organized and you've got when to change the batteries and the smoke detectors at your house. I do it when they start chirping. Um, some of you, you know, like air filters at your house. You've got a little buzzer on your watch. And so some of you, I see you. I know who you are. I don't know what it's like to live your life though. I'm kind of more of an intuitive type person. And so I'm in my office. I look up, eight, nine feet up in the ceiling there, and I can't remember ever changing that air filter. But I have an air filter for it. In fact, it's in the closet right outside the door of this room because when I order them, I just like, yeah, just give me five of them so that I'll just have them when we need them. And, but the, to get this thing changed, I'm going to need a ladder. I'm like, I don't want to do that because I'll get the ladder, I'll scratch the wall, then I'll have to get the paint, then I'm going to paint that, and then I'll get the wrong color paint, I'll be going to Lowe's. Before I know it, it's the whole weekend. And so I'm looking around thinking, I don't want to change the air filter, but God's gifted me like manna from heaven. I've got these little people running around my house. And I look at the bookshelf, I'm like, the bookshelf could support their weight. I don't think I could get mine. 
And so I say to one of my daughters, and she said I could share this story, but don't ask who it was. They hate when you do that, just so you know. So church family, leave them alone, but here's what happened. I said, hey, honey, come over here. You just, see, I want you to climb up this bookshelf, and I'm going to hand you the filter, and you're just going to change the filter. And she's like, oh, okay, Dad. And so she's like about four feet up. She looks at me with a little motivation. I'm talking her through it. She's about six feet up there. I'm like, you got this. I'm here. I'll catch you if you fall. She's like, I don't know. She gets up on top of the thing. I think this is, should be like two or three minutes. I could have gotten the ladder, come up there, repainted the whole room from the scratches I put on the wall with the ladder. We're talking, negotiating. She's shimmying around, and then she does what I can't handle. She cries. It's over. Get down. Come down. Don't tell your mom. I'll pay for counseling later. Like, here we are. It's like, don't do that. And then she says, she says to me, she goes, I don't get scared when I'm on roller coasters. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Get out of here. You know, get this thing fixed. A couple days later, we're talking. I said, hey, honey. What was that roller coaster comment? That was interesting. She's like, well, you know, you know, Fury's like 325 feet up in the air, and I was eight feet up in the air, but she goes, but on Fury, I know that I'm actually safe. Up there, I thought, I could die. Like, I'm not that weak, I could have caught you, but whatever. <laughs> it felt like real risk. What's real risk is like what Moses does here. It says that he considered the reproach of Christ. Moses decided to identify with Jesus, and when he made that decision, he put himself in the danger zone. It was risk. But you gotta ask yourself, if you know your Bible very well, how did Moses choose Christ? Because uh, doesn't Jesus come on the scene like page 1100 in my Bible? Moses is at like page 200, so how does that happen? But then you look at Moses' life and you're like, yeah, it totally connects with Jesus because who else is there that's called to be a redeemer and a ruler? Who else is there that when they're born, there's an insecure, angry king that's afraid for his throne, so he starts killing all the boys? That gets called out of Egypt. Oh, by the way, there's a water miracle, and he miraculously feeds people in the wilderness. Sounds familiar. He came to set the captives free. He willingly left a throne to identify with his people, walk with those people, so they could experience real freedom. There's only one other like that, Jesus. But Moses couldn't have known all that. But I've taught you before when we've looked at the Old Testament that Jesus is in the Old Testament. In fact, apart from just the uh, creation account where the Trinity is actively involved, Jesus is specifically mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. During the curse, after sin enters the world, then God gives a promise, I'm going to send a son. He's going to crush the head of the serpent, the enemy. He's going to be born of a woman. And so we're looking for someone that's born of a woman, probably a miraculous birth. Who is that? Was that Abraham? Nope, not Abraham. But if you don't know the Bible already, what happens at the end, as you read the Bible, like the Israelites would have been doing, you're going, well, where's the, one? Where's the promised son? Who's the promised son? But then Abraham has a son who's miraculously born of a woman who's 90 years old. The Bible says as good as dead. So this miraculous birth of this young man named Isaac, is he the one? And then we read Genesis chapter 22, which we heard a sermon on about a month ago. Pastor Alex was telling us about Abraham taking his son Isaac up the mountain. He's about 16 years old. And remember he asked a question, Isaac says, when there's going to be a sacrifice at the top of this mountain, where's the lamb? Did you notice in the story, there's no lamb? There's a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. Lambs don't have horns. I know we're not a farming culture, but they don't have horns, all right? And so the reader is now going, where's the son? Where's the lamb? Is it Abraham? Nope. Is it Isaac? Nope. 
Maybe it's Moses, lots of signs, but nope. Miraculously born, a deliverer, a redeemer, miracle worker, leads the people, but nope, not him. Okay, then who is it? And you keep reading the Bible and you come to books like Ruth. And you're like, there's this kinsman redeemer, his name is Boaz, but it's not him. But then he has some kids with Ruth and it's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David. And David's pretty special. He kills that giant, obscure beginning. Maybe it's him. Nope, he can't even build a temple. Got blood on his hands, but God promises him. The one we've been waiting for, he's gonna come through your line. So is it Solomon? Nope. Then there's all these prophets that tell more information like virgin birth and things like that and Isaiah. Then you get to Matthew and it's the reason why the New Testament starts the way that it does because this is what everybody's been waiting for. From the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Boaz, Rahab, the prostitutes even in there. Like you read through this, this is Jesus. Like Isaiah the prophet said 700 years ago, born of a virgin. Mm. So he knew there was an anticipated one, but he couldn't have known all that. What he knew was that he would leave a throne and come and identify with his people and lead them out of captivity, and that's what Moses chose to do. You know what's really interesting is what the New Testament says about Moses. Jesus himself confronting the religious leaders who are claiming they don't believe in Jesus because they believe in Moses. He says this, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. I'm who he was writing about. Peter, when he's preaching in Acts 3, that message that gets him arrested and then eventually beaten, talk about living on the ragged edge of risk, he says this, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, Jewish. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and they don't, and like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, they waste their lives and spend eternity separated from God. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, when he's preaching, says this, Acts chapter 7, verse 37, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And then here we come to Hebrews. And then Hebrews, remember, you don't drift. We're not of those who shrink back. Do you know what they're going to shrink back to? Their religion like the Pharisees. They said, we follow Moses. The author of Hebrews is going, Moses follows Jesus. So you're going to walk away from Jesus because of the risk and go to Moses and then he says and that's why he says what he says in verse 26 he chose the reproach of Christ and you know what that's like you've done that don't turn back and isn't it interesting that in the New Testament when it talks about Moses it points right to Jesus have you ever known somebody whose life was like that that when you talked about them it just got you to Jesus And I don't mean like you go to funerals or you talk about somebody in community and they're like, hey, he's a great guy, he owns his business, he's so kind. Did you know he goes to church? Like Christians always had that on there, right? So-and-so is running for office. You know he's a Christian, right? So she goes to my Bible study. I've seen, I saw one time they, no, I'm not talking about an add-on. Their life, they've been so spiritually transformed that it oozes Jesus. They're so identified with him that you can't help but talk about Jesus when you talk about them. That's what's supposed to happen for all of us. That's why Jesus says we're supposed to be a city on a hill. In a world of darkness, we are the light, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and that people would, Matthew chapter 5, you want to check this out, 14 through 16, they would see your lives, and they wouldn't say, they're awesome, and they go to church. They would glorify your Father and have 
your life would so identify with God that when they talked about you, they'd talk about him. Wow. How? How do we do that? How does that happen? Good news is the Bible tells us. Hebrews, go, um, if you got your Bible, you can flip over a page or two, put the verse on the screen, Hebrews chapter 13. Not talking about Moses anymore, talking to us. But he's talking to these Jewish believers, and so he uses some sacrificial language. He says this, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. They would understand that. I know it takes some explaining. We we'll have time to get into all that. Um, there's a message I preached on that a few uh, weeks ago. It says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Okay? Now he's setting up this theme. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Okay? Sacrifices burned outside the camp. Jesus suffered outside the gate. When Jesus was crucified, it was outside the city gates. When he's buried, it's outside the city gates in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, this is what he's getting to. This is the argument. Let us, not just, hey, Moses did this. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We're identifying with Jesus. What is he talking about? What's happening here? Quick summary of what's happening there is the language that he's using is on the day of atonement, People would bring all these animals, they'd be sacrificed and killed, but then what do you do with all those animals? So they'd take those animals and they'd burn them outside the camp. And that place became unholy. He said, well, Jesus, when Jesus was killed, he was killed outside the camp. Mm-hmm. There's something interesting about Jesus, though. Like, if a person in the Bible came into contact with a leper... They had to go out there to that unclean place for seven days. When a leper comes and touches Jesus, Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. When Jesus is outside the camp, he's saying, this isn't just for the Jewish people. This is for everybody. And then he says to us, so you bear reproach and you got to take Jesus. You go to, like he did, outside the camp. You go to him outside the camp. You take this to everybody. You want to bear the reproach of Christ, rock on the ragged edge of risk? Here's what you need to do. Get outside your comfort zone. Bible study is awesome. You need to be in a small group. We live out the one another of Scripture all through the New Testament. All that. You know, you're in a homeschool group or you've got some book study or you've got ladies' prayer group or men's breakfast or whatever. Why do men always have breakfast? Anyway, you've got all these things. That's great. You need that. But it's pretty safe. You're called to risk. You're prepared for risk, but you eventually have to step out. And there's a danger with me telling you this because I talk about the reproach of Christ. Some people, not any that go to this church, I'm sure, are jerks. And they lack compassion. They don't listen. They think they're always right. And then, oh, they go to church. And so they're like, people don't like me because I'm, uh, you know, with Jesus. And they're like, no, they don't like you because you're not a good human. All right? So you're, Jesus isn't your excuse for being a bad human. He's your only hope for that to change. So, danger is, don't go be a jerk and be like, it's persecution. Nope, you're a jerk. Jerks for Jesus is not a ministry we plan to start anytime soon. (laughs) But what it's saying is, if you'd be like Jesus outside your camp, meaning people that don't vote like you, people that don't go to your church, people that don't have the same thoughts you have, and rather than yelling at them and being a punk, you would be willing to take a stand for Jesus and grace and truth with this balance of mercy and strength, meekness. Meekness is strength under control. You have the ability to be a jerk, but you choose not to because the Holy Spirit's guarding your life. That's the kind of person that people go, that's like Jesus. 
That's the way. That's the way. And you bear the reproach. But there's a risk, but it's like a dangerous security that you have because you're in God's hands. Second point, living on the ragged edge of risk puts you in the secure hands of God. You are dangerously secure because you don't know what's going to happen, but you're with him. Verse 28, by faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover, and it's exactly what it sounds like, the wrath passed over and sprinkled the blood. Now, that seems normal to us. You know, Jews have been doing this for a long time. We know the story. There was no precedent for that. Why a lamb? Why no broken bones? Why firstborn? Why blood? Why on the doorpost? Like, none of that made any sense to them, but they did it. God ever ask you to do something you can't see, what all he's doing? Yeah, everything. So that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The word Passover actually is a word for protection. If you don't know the story, what happens is all the firstborn are going to die unless the people who, by faith, do what God tells them to do and put blood on the doorpost of their house. And then what happens is the death angel or destroyer, this passage calls it, passes over the homes that did that by faith in the blood of the sacrificed, unblemished lamb. Do you see where this is going? Do you know the Bible? Yeah. Who's protecting them? It's God. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 23 says this, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he, God, the Lord, sees the blood on the lintel and the doorpost, so it's on your doorway, the Lord will pass over the door, and who? He. Will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. <laughs> you ever see like the, you know, celebrities travel and they got the bodyguards with them, the bodyguards are all like seven feet tall and ripped. I know some of you like own gyms and some of you did like the work, you know, the, which way is the weight room, like you know, the pulse and all that stuff. And like, I get it. Like, you know, some of y'all are like in super good shape. Did you see who the bodyguard is here? It's the Lord God Almighty himself. So the destroyer, death angel comes and God's like, not in this one. Okay, moving on. Yeah, Because he's protecting them. Just the ones that did it by faith though. The ones who did something that didn't make any sense, but by faith, how do they, how do they even get to that spot? Like, so if you back up, what you see is it's plague after plague after plague, and you're like, well, God's flexing. No, why? Why are there plagues? You think about how God could have delivered Israel from the Egyptians. Like, if you read Acts and you see these ama amazing prison breaks, he could have had two million people disappear. The Egyptians wake up one morning and go, where'd those people go? Because that's what happened to some of the prison breaks. Like, hey, the cell's still closed. Where, where did the prisoners go? What happened? That's not what God does. And some Bible scholars will tell you that what, what's happening here is that God is giving in each plague a battle against one of the Egyptian gods. And we don't have time to get into all that. If we ever do a series on that, we'll talk about some of that. The Bible doesn't actually say that though. That's from history. So we just don't know for sure. That might be true. It makes sense historically and culturally, and it would go with what the Bible actually does say. Here's what the Bible does say is happening. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. The first time that we know of that Moses comes and says, let the people go, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, anyway. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And here's the key statement. I do not know the Lord. In other words, and I'm not going to do what he says. Moreover, I'll not let Israel go. Okay. So the first plague is blood. Blood in the Nile River. The Nile River is their source of life. It is believed by many of them to be the lifeline of one of their false gods. And when it overflows every year, they believe that was when that god was being reborn. But here's practically what it meant. The place stunk, because you can imagine a river full of blood. It's the water source for everything that they do. It's the economic. Can you even imagine the economy? Oh, I want to go there. Uh, 
Seven days, the economy shut down. Maybe that's a confrontation of their materialism. The fish die. That's a staple of their diet. Seven days. The people get a workaround. They figure out a filtration system. They start digging next to the Nile, and they can use that water. But why did God do that? Exodus 7.17 tells us why. Thus says the Lord, by this, remember what Pharaoh said? I don't know the Lord. By this, you shall know that I am the Lord. And then he tells them to strike the Nile. That's why. So you'll know. So not just that Israel will know, but so that Egypt will know. Second one, frogs. Frogs, that's kind of gross. What's going on with that? You get to the end of it and you're like, but when it was over, they still had to clean all that up. That's just not. Have you ever had, have you ever got a bunch of frogs before? Like one time I had, um, I was a young man who visited our church uh, a few weeks ago. He plays basketball at UNC. He grew up at our church and uh, then went away to play basketball in college and he was back and after the service he came up to me, he was like, Pastor Scott, you know, your stories sometimes. My brother, I'd get in the back of the car and I'd sit between my brother and my sister and we'd debate whether they were true or not. Okay. The Lord will be my judge. <laughs> the bookshelf really happened. Just don't ask about it, all right? So, uh, he said, do you remember that time you were talking about throwing frogs up in the tree? And I was like, I do. Like, it just clicked in my head. I was like, I remember that. Because what happened was I decided to put a pool, one of those Walmart blow-up pools in our backyard, but I didn't, like, think through the process real well and I put it right behind my bedroom window and I didn't realize it was going to be a mating ground for frogs. And they don't just go ribbit. It's like a cacophony of noises. So I'm like laying in bed, and when I'd get up at like 2 in the morning, I'd go out there with a, a net for the pool, and I'd just fling those suckers as far as I could get them out of there. If you're like a frog enthusiast, I'm sorry. God's still working on me too. But I don't want it outside my bedroom window, so I'm just like chucking frogs. You're going to become a tree frog. Here you go. And let's go just get them out of there. They were annoying. In Egypt, frogs were actually sacred. And they weren't just outside the house. If you read the account, they were in the sheets when you woke up in the morning, in the oven, in the bread. Can you imagine having a frog in your shoe? Yeah, they're in your bread. To people that think we could never kill one of these things because then God's going to be mad at us. Okay, so what was God doing? Well, he tells us. He wanted them to know. What did he want them to know? That he is the one true God. Exodus chapter 8 and verse 10, be it as you say, the Lord our God, he's the one Lord. And then you go on gnats, gnats are just annoying, right? Like the gnats are gross. And I remember one time being on a fishing trip and this guy, he, he took us out on his boat and he had on the back of his boat a place where there was bait, but all the bait died. And when he opened the, the container for all the bait, just like, I don't know if they were texting each other. Like, how did they know? Here's the nasty. Come over here. It's like, boom, we just got hit by like 100,000 gnats. And I know because I can count. I'm a pastor. So I can count really fast. Making fun of myself, just so you know. Um, they're flying up your nose and in your ears and your eyes. And the gnats that are here, by definition, were biting. And the guy that owned the boat was like, they don't bite. I'm like, it doesn't matter. I still hate it. Like, it's terrible. So there's all these gnats. Why gnats? These God's not just annoying the Egyptians. Something happens after this third plague, though, and, and, and I don't want you to miss this because it's important. These other plagues all happen, but not in Goshen. Goshen is where the Hebrews live, God's people, the ones who live by faith. Um, the next plague is insects, and it says in some of your Bibles, flies, but it's all kinds of different insects, a multitude of insects, so you can imagine what that's like. But on that day, I'll set apart the land of Goshen, Exodus 8:22, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of insects shall be there. 
that you may know, here's the reason why, that you would know, I don't know the Lord, that you would know that I am the Lord in the midst of all the earth, and the next plague is the livestock, and all the livestock are going to die, but not in Goshen. And the next there's boils, and everybody's going to get boils, pussy sores that are really tender, but not in Goshen. Why? Exodus 9.16. For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all, not just Egypt, not just Israel, all the earth, not just now, for all generations. So you're going to bring life to Goshen when there's death everywhere else. City on a hill. Locust, not in Goshen. Darkness, read the darkness one when you get time on your own. It says they felt the darkness and no one moved for three days. But you know who had light? Goshen. You'll be a city on a hill. So the Israelites were supposed to be a people of light in a culture of darkness, a people of life in a culture of death. Sounds familiar. And then this firstborn thing happens and they trust God, not because it made sense to put blood on the doorpost of their house, and not because they knew the details of how they would be delivered, but because they knew the one who was going to do the deliverance. Did you get that? Don't miss that. You miss everything else in this message. It's not because they knew the details of their delivery. They didn't. That's why at the edge of the water they're going, we'd have been better off back there. If they knew what was going to happen, you know what they'd be saying? Oh, watch this. This is awesome. It's not because they knew the details of their deliverance. It's because they knew the deliverer. And and you know what the promise was? Same one that Moses got. Talk about you're in the secure hands of God, living dangerously secure. Because there's danger. You don't know what's going to happen. But you know who you're with? The American Psychological Association defines insecurity as this, an overall sense of uncertainty or anxiety about your worth, abilities, skills, and value as a person, conveying the message that you are at risk or in danger of something or someone. That's insecurity. Do you remember week one? Moses, burning bush. Who am I? Uncertain of himself, his identity, and God doesn't say, you're worth it, Moses. I'm with you. And they argue about the plan and the danger, and they're not going to believe me. And then God shows them, this, I got this power. And then he says, but I can't even speak. And he doesn't go, no, you're not that bad, and you'll get better as you practice. No, he doesn't say that. He says, who made your mouth? I'm going to tell you what to say. I'm with you. He doesn't know the details. We read this because we know the story like he knew. He didn't know. It's risk. The ragged edge of risk. And you might go, oh, I'd do that too if I had those promises. Oh, yeah? So that book, Matthew, that starts off, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, it tells the line, and then here it is, Jesus. And then there's just the first story is this guy, Joseph, who's engaged to the gal, Mary, who's going to give birth to this child, and he knows it ain't his. And the angel tells him the name of the baby. Do you know the name of the baby? Not Jesus. Quotes an Old Testament passage that's been talking about Jesus. And he will be called Emmanuel. And in case you don't know what I'm saying, Matthew makes it really clear. Because he's God with us. Great for the people who actually walked with him. Except at the end of that book, when Jesus is about to leave, do you know what he says? He gives you a commission, actually. Go, make disciples of all nations, anywhere, anytime, anyplace. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. 
Teach them to obey everything I've taught you. You don't need to teach more than you know. Teach what you know. Teach everything I've taught you. And here's your promise. I'll be with you. But what if, what if it goes really bad? Like, what if I get my head cut off? Or what if I lose my family? My family get mad at me and they reject me. Jesus talked about that too. Because he knew we'd ask that question. It's kind of like Exodus 13 when he says, hey, when we get to war, you're going to want to go back. And so Matthew chapter 19, verse 29 Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, etc., for my name's sake, you choose the reproach of Christ, identify with me, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. What is faith? He rewards those who seek him. So if you lose your job and become homeless, for what, 30 or 40 more years, you're going to die? We're all going to die. And then God's going, I'm going to pay that back a hundred times for eternity. That's an incredible investment. So even in losing, you win. What if they kill you? Okay, uh, let's think through that. You get to go be with Jesus. That's pretty awesome. Who wouldn't take that? And your blood's going to cry out the name of Jesus because you're saying by your death it was worth dying for him. And God promises a hundredfold return. What? Anybody want to shoot? Go for it. I'm in. But then we don't. Why not? Why wouldn't you? Father, we come before you today, and we need you. Because many of us feel like Moses. You call, us to do, you call me to make disciples, but I don't know these things. I don't have these gifts. I don't, and there's, our insecurity just comes up. And Father, will you remind us that you empower the things you command us to do? No matter what, you show up. We get to see you in ways we don't get to see you when we don't live by faith. Because people who do things that other people don't do, see things that other people don't see, we want to see you. Will you show us yourself? We don't want to just go to church. We don't want to just be moral, guided, whatever nonsense that we settle for in our culture. We want real intimacy with you. We want to be changed. We want to be used to be change agents. Father, will you make a difference in our hearts right now? I pray that as we set these moments aside to be with you, you would change us. Do your work. I don't even know what you're doing. Would you do work? People's hearts, you want to save somebody? Save somebody. They're watching online. They're in this room. Call them to yourself. Call them to your son, Jesus, that they can experience what the Israelites experienced in the Passover from your wrath because of what your son did on the cross, and they would trust in his blood. And that would be communicated not just on the doorpost of their house, but everywhere they go, that they are identified with your son, Jesus Christ. Transform them. Transform me. Transform all of us. I've been walking with you for 40 years or is Four days, God, do a work. Do beyond what I would be able to ask right now. And I pray as we pause, you'd speak. Speak. Somebody needs to turn from a sin. That's what they need to refuse. Somebody needs to stop living for themselves and building their own kingdom and start investing for eternity. Help them to know what that next step is in that. Supernaturally speak. Something needs to happen in a Relationship. Somebody needs to boldly take the gospel somewhere outside the camp. Put a name, a face on their hearts. Make the opportunity so obvious this week that to not take them would be a denial of your son Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.